I was in seminary and serving a church in Birmingham, Alabama in 2001. And the Sunday after 9-11 was a Sunday I will uh, never forget. The mood was uh, somber and solemn. You could see the hurt and the fear and the confusion in people's faces as they poured into our church that morning. Our sanctuary sat around 3,500 people, and on any given Sunday, there would have been uh, more than enough room. But on Sunday, September 16th, 2001, every pew was uh, packed to overflowing. We added as much seating uh, as we could. Uh, It was standing room only against all the walls. It even spilled over into the lobby that morning. There was a sense of people longing for hope people longing for peace, but there was also this collective, where do we go from here, that kind of sat heavy that morning. Now, on the religious side of things, uh, most churches, their attendance returned to normal by November, but for the military, in their recruitment and enlistment, took a huge boost that year. Over 181,000 Americans enlisted in the ranks of active duty service, and nearly 74,000 joined the enlisted reserves in the year following September 11th. Many of these brave uh, new service members said it was the events that took place on 9-11 that inspired them to enlist. This was actually the largest enlistment in the military since our country faced an earlier unprecedented attack on Pearl Harbor. And the military's mission in both of those instances was very, very clear. And people are always motivated by a focused mission and by giving their lives to something that matters. This morning, I want to recruit you to the mission And I believe from the outset in your heart of hearts that you desire to be connected to the mission. Because deep in all of our hearts is this desire to give ourselves to something that matters. We want to give our lives to something worthy, something that asks a great deal of us. If being a Christ follower is simply showing up at church when it's convenient, or tossing a a few dollars into the offering plate every now and then, I can assure you that's not going to capture your heart and your life. You've got to see something compelling that God is calling you to. And my heart's desire is that you would be captured and captivated by the mission of God. I long with everything inside of me to invite you, to recruit you in to this mission, to have your heart so captivated that you can't imagine giving yourself to anything, anything else other than the mission that God has called us to. Texas A&M has a tradition when it comes to their football games. Many of you are probably familiar. It's known as the 12th man. What happens here is for their football games, for the entirety of the game, the student section stands to their feet. Well, that happened because in 1922, A&M was playing the number one ranked team in the country, and they were losing, and they were actually running out of players due to injury. 
And so in desperation, their coach, Dana Bible, turned around and looked up into the stands and pointed at a young man and signaled him to come down, sent him to the locker room to gear up, and then he took his place on the sidelines of that game. Ever since then, the student section has stood symbolically to say, here I am, coach. I'm ready. Send me in. Man, I would long for Wildwood to be just like that. A place that says, here I am, God. I'm ready. Would you send me? I know what you're asking me to do. Would you send me on mission? Well, we're going to wrap up our Living Scent series uh, this morning and, again, take a look at our theme verse that's been guiding us throughout. It's in a prayer that Jesus prayed in John chapter uh, 17, and he says, As you, meaning his heavenly Father, have sent me into the world, my prayer for my disciples, my followers, is that they, too, would live sent. That just like I have been sent, they would understand that they are sent, called to live in the same way, with the same mission. And if we had time to look fully at the totality of the prayer that Jesus prayed, we would see that he was only able to carry out this mission by fully relying on his heavenly Father. And if that's true of Jesus, how could we imagine that there would be any hope for us to carry out the mission we've been given without that same reliance? without that same dependency on God. And so really, the only hope for the church to accomplish Jesus' mission is to pursue intimacy with our Heavenly Father, to be closely connected to uh, His heart. And we can only do that through the knowledge of His Son and the indwelling power of His Holy Spirit that He has given to us. And so make it your aim this week to abide in his word, to daily seek his guidance as you strive to make disciples of all nations. That was kind of the sermon before the sermon. We're just getting warmed up this morning. And so if you're willing and able, let me invite you to take a copy of God's word and stand with me in honor of his word. We will be in Luke chapter 4, the gospel of Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. And he, meaning Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty or freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind." to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Heavenly Father, we want to understand the very words that Jesus read about his mission from the prophet Isaiah, what he was feeling called to do, the duty that he was given, the mission that he was sent for, to understand his heart, his care for those, his desire for the kingdom to come and be made known. And God, I pray that you would captivate our hearts this morning by this same very mission. 
Father, that our eyes would be set and fixed on you. Father, would you move me out of the way so that your word can go forth in power and may it land on good soil in our hearts and take a good root and produce much fruit. Father, we come to your word as always, not seeking mere information. We come seeking transformation. Would you change us today through the power of your word to make us more like your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. So we've seen Jesus in our text this morning lay out his mission, that he was going to be about his father's business, sent by his father to accomplish something for his father so it makes sense for us to know what he was about. Amen? That we would understand what Jesus was after. And so we've got a lot of work to do and less time to do it in this morning. And so let's jump right in. The first thing is the mission is a call to gospel faithfulness. Over and over, we have to come back to the gospel. And if you ever find yourself in here at a point saying, man, they talk about the gospel a lot, then that's our cue to know that we need to talk about it even more, right? We're on the right path. Because I think it's so easy to get confused in our lives because the gospel's not just about some sort of individual fulfillment or happiness. The gospel's not just a wonderful plan for my life. It's a wonderful plan for the world. It's about the coming of God's kingdom to renew and restore everything that's broken. And that's what makes the gospel the good news, not good advice. Well, we're, we're talking about, when we talk about the gospel, the merger of the great commandment and the great commission, the great commandment that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that you would love your neighbor as yourself, and the great commission that we would go into the world and make disciples of all the nations. And I want you to understand clearly, church, that God doesn't involve us in this mission because he needs us. He involves us in this mission because he loves us. See, Jesus called these early disciples, and what did he say? Hey, come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And after three years of investing in their lives and showing them what it means to live as a disciple, he launches them out on mission. The progression, did you see it, was from come and see to now go and die. There's a calling from come and see to now go and give your lives away for the sake of this mission. And as Jesus commissions his disciples out, he fully expects them to structure their lives around this kingdom mission. And so some 2,000 years later, he's calling his disciples and commissioning us out on this same mission. So have we lost our way in this calling See, I'm fearful that we've exchanged the gospel dream of being on mission with God for the American dream. The pursuit of the American dream where you trust yourself and where you make much of yourself. That's not what he's called us to. Let me challenge you to pursue the gospel dream where you crucify yourself and make much of God. And let me be honest in saying this morning, if you don't see much wrong with the uh, American dream in comparison to the gospel dream, then the rest of this message won't be of much use to you. We've got to move away from our current understanding of the gospel 
so prevalent in the American church is the version of the gospel that just simply says, I I have what I have, and then I get to sprinkle a little Jesus on top. Like Jesus is an addition to all the great things going on in my life. On some level, we've all said, even though we would rarely say out loud, hey, this Jesus guy is really a great deal. In addition to the great life I already have, the nice car and home, family and, and friends, I'll just add Jesus to it and then I get my ticket to heaven, right? What a bonus. So basically, we've perverted the gospel to say, well, I'll come to Jesus if I get to keep all my stuff. If I get to keep the life that I have, man, this sounds like a great deal. I get all of this plus Jesus, but you need to know that that's not the gospel. The biblical gospel is, I'll come to Jesus, I'll follow Jesus, even if I lose everything. If I lose my friends, if I lose my stuff, if I lose my my dream or my vision for, for my life, my plans, my future, even my family, because Jesus lost everything in order to save me. And once I understand that the calling of this gospel is, yes, come and see, but then it's go and die, then I can properly understand the mission that he has called us to. See, faith family, we've got to remember that the gospel fundamentally realigns and reshapes everything about us down to our core. It gives us this overarching purpose, and it's this, that the purpose of my life as a Christ follower is to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's it. That's why I exist. That's why after coming to faith, he didn't just whoosh, take me up to heaven, because that's where we'll end up, right? He's left us here for a reason, a very strategic reason to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's living scent. That's embracing the heart that Jesus has. That's fulfilling and being launched out on the mission that Jesus commissions us to complete. The second truth we see this morning is that the mission exists to love those that Jesus loved. Make no mistake, these are devastating times in which we live 1.75 billion people live in desperate poverty. A billion are hungry. More people enslaved today than any other time in human history. Pandemic diseases literally gouging entire nations. Every year, nearly 2 million children are exploited in the global sex trade. We've already seen and know that one in three people globally lack access to clean water. That's nearly two billion people. We need to be reminded that 75% of the world's income goes to 20% of the world's population. And in the few minutes it took me to give you just some of these global statistics, nearly 90 children died of preventable diseases. The Bible calls these people the least of these, the poor, the needy, the vulnerable, the exploited, the orphans, uh, the widows. It's what Jesus said he was going to be about. And if you cut concern for the least of these out of the Bible, you've cut the very heart of God out of the Bible. This is God's heart. 
Jesus had a target audience. We, we saw them in our text this morning, the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. This was his mission statement. Jesus makes the least of these his priority, which means should they not be our priority as well? We need to remember this morning that there's three billion people in the world and over 7,000 people groups that are classified as unreached. This means they have little or no access to the gospel. No church, no pastor, no missionary, no Bible in their language. They are on a road today that leads to an eternal hell. And that should break our hearts. This morning I prayed for the Nehi of India. Nehi, there's almost 14 million Nehi trapped in Hinduism in India. How do we get to them? How do we get them the gospel? How do we love them and care for them and pray for them? And then think about our brothers and sisters in the global church who are under severe persecution. Yes, even today. Do you realize that 75% of the Christian population live in the third world in a very anti-Christian environment? Yet God is doing amazing things in the global church. There's, there's more Chinese in a communist and persecuted environment that take place in Sunday worship more than the entirety of all Western Europeans. And then there's places like Lebanon that's 39% Christian, yet very hostile. The Sudan, 5% Christian. Egypt, about 10%. Many of our brothers and sisters gathering this morning to worship at their own risk, knowing that they may walk to church, but they may not actually make it back home. Now, here's my concern. Statistics don't change our hearts. Only Jesus can. But my concern is that many of us that would claim to be Christ followers will go our entire lives without noticing the urgent needs around the world, or even those that are right around us here in Tallahassee. Are we living unaware that multiplied millions, even billions among the nations still have no access to the gospel? Are we also unaware that these same have urgent physical needs. And I would say, church, this is where we've got to fight our natural responses. We've got to face the reality that it's so much easier to just turn a blind eye and not see. It's easier really to not know or really want to know. We might have compassionate inclinations, but we, all, we often don't know what to do with those inclinations, and so we retreat back to, to what is safe and what is comfortable. So when the news reports that, that just this week a major earthquake took place uh, in a northern region of Afghanistan and we see the devastation, uh, what do we do? What do we do knowing that there's Afghani refugees settling right here in, in Tallahassee? Well, what do we do knowing that they're coming over here to a new country, a new culture with nothing? Well, what do we do for those that, that are still living in, in war-ravaged Ukraine? 
still fleeing, still trying to make a, a, a go of it. And, and I understand it feels so weighty and overwhelming and large that we go, well, what do we do? What do we do when we're driving around town and see one of our homeless standing with a cardboard sign? Isn't it easier just to turn an eye, just to look away, to kind of retreat into our self-protected bubble, if you will, to put, put our, our, our shield up? After all, what can I do about the famine in Sudan or the plight of the unemployed or the pandemic of malaria? And I really don't think that we want to retreat from the world or stick our heads in a hole, but the problems are immense, are they not? And on top of that, we've got our own issues, our struggling marriages, fading ambitions, dwindling bank accounts or retirement accounts, our own stubborn hearts. How can we change the world when we can't even change our own bad habits? But we've got to keep our eyes open. We've got to keep asking the questions, even when they make us uncomfortable, and then wrestle to find answers. We've got to wrestle through why do a billion people go to bed hungry every night? Why do nearly three thirty excuse me, why do nearly thirty thousand children die every day, one every three seconds from hunger and preventable diseases? It certainly isn't fair. Listen, church, it's hard to look suffering in the face. We would rather turn away, stare in a different direction, fix our gaze on fairer objects. Human hurt is not easy on the eyes, but it's not supposed to be. This is where we remember our eyes have been redeemed through Jesus. He's given us eyes to see like he sees Let's be the people that look at the hurting and hurt until we hurt with them. Let's look at the faces until we see the person inside. And as we live life, we're certainly going to come across the least of these. And we'll have a choice to make. Neglect or rescue. Label them or love them. We know Jesus' choice. Let's join him on his mission, and let's love and serve those who he loves. Thirdly, the mission requires urgency and priority. We talked about the great commission, the mission that Jesus himself has given to us. We read it in Matthew 28, starting in verse 16, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to observe all that I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. There's really one commandment in the structure of this passage, and it's this, make disciples of all the nations. Jesus says to his disciples, and he says to us, you have one mission in your life, and no, it's not to make a lot of money and be successful and have a comfortable life and a great family 
and a good retirement account so that you can live nicely and retire well. It's not to get a good education. It's not to get all that you can out of this life. Not that any of those things are bad in and of themselves. But if we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there's a mission that supersedes all of those things. And it's making disciples of all the nations. It's the mission in which Jesus commands us to revolve our lives around. And I'm using that word very intentionally, a command, because that's what's in this passage. I want you to see that it's not a suggestion for followers of Christ. It's a command. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, said, the great commission is not an option to be considered. It's a command to be obeyed. And I fully understand this morning that this mission is daunting. But let me again remind you that Jesus Christ has given you everything you need through the power of the Holy Spirit. He has gifted you, uniquely equipped you for this mission. And don't miss this so you won't be overwhelmed. No one can do everything but everyone can do something. So the question is, what is God calling you to do? How is He calling you this morning to join His mission? Let me give you three helpful categories. Pray, give, and go. For application today, you'll be able to explore those in greater detail, but as you think about this message and think about what he is calling you to do, think in the realms of how can I pray, how can I give, and how can I go? On a fall morning in 2009, 22 people traveled to London. They could have passed for a retirement home social club. They were all in their 70s or 80s, more gray hair than not. But this was no social trip. It was actually a journey of gratitude. They came to thank the man who had saved their very lives, a man who is now 100 years old. But they first met him on a train platform in 1939. At that time, he was a 29-year-old stockbroker Hitler's, armages, Hitler's armies were ravaging uh, the nations, particularly Czechoslovakia, tearing Jewish families apart and marching parents to concentration camps. But no one was caring for the children. He got wind of their plight and he resolved to help them. He started to use his vacation time to travel to Prague where he met parents who incredibly were willing to entrust their children to his care. After returning to England, he worked his regular job on the stock exchange by day, but then advocated for these children by night. After much work, he convinced Great Britain to permit their entry. He started to find foster homes and raise funding for their care, and then he scheduled his first transport on March 14, 1939. He accomplished seven more over the next five months. His last trainload of children arrived on August 2nd, bringing a total number of rescued children to 669. 
On September 1st, the largest transport was to take place, but by that time, Hitler had invaded Poland and Germany, closed their borders throughout Europe. None of the 250 children on that train were ever seen again. After the war, this man didn't tell anyone of his rescue efforts, not even his wife. In fact, it wasn't until 1988 that she was in their attic and found a scrapbook with all these children's photos and a list of their names. She prodded him to tell the story. And as he began to share the story publicly, rescued children returned to say, thank you. Some 7,000 children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren who owe their existence to a man by the name of Nicholas Winton. His passion to help the least of these was only matched by his bravery to rescue them. He wore a ring given to him by some of the children that he saved. It actually bears a line from the Talmud, the book of the Jewish law, save one life, save the world. Faith family, can we do the same? By God's grace and by the power of His Spirit, we can. And I want to encourage you, even in the midst of feeling potentially overwhelmed and what can I do and where do I go, to check out some of the practical application this morning. It'll be on the bottom of your sermon notes page. You can follow the QR code to a link that will just give you these helpful categories of pray and give and go, what does it look like for you, for me to join Jesus, living sent on the mission that he has called us to?